0: Live and in color from the NBC News radio broadcasting studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California, and in parallel from the Turfs Up radio studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to The Water Zone Show this evening. Good afternoon to everybody at the world. Welcome to The Water Zone tonight. I'm your host, Rob Stark, along with our other guest host. Hey v. Chris, how you doing? Splendid, man.
1: Just uh coming off, you know, a very interesting week. It was north and south, hot and cold night and day here. The big bomb cyclone hit on the on Sunday and Monday, and then today it was 96 degrees
0: here. So, wow. We, you know, no rain off, here. Hot. No rain here at all. No rain here at all. That was
1: that was Monday. So, yeah. So in, in two days from then, it's gone from, uh, I think the high was 56, 58. Now, today, it was 96.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> getting, getting weird. So anything else that's exciting? So no. go ahead.
2: Oh, no, I, 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 I'm I sorry. I'm just chiming in because up here in Chico, it was, it's been a beautiful 72 degrees today.
3: So.
0: Oh. There, and everybody, that's Miss. Chris Austin, the provider of Maven's Notebook. So welcome to the show, Chris. And uh hopefully we're gonna get you on the video section next time so we can all see each other and point and tell what order to go and do all of that stuff. So 'cause I I keep stepping on people accidentally and I don't want to do that. Oh, well, yeah,
2: and, and, and I timed in again before it was my time, so I'm sorry. Oh no,
0: I was no, you your time is our time. You're part of the team, and we appreciate that. And for all the listeners out there, just to remind everybody guess who's getting inducted into the Green Industry Hall of Fame? <laughs> Miss Hey, we're very, we're very. And as I've always said, all of us, including Kathy Kellogg, who's part of our show, uh, and she'll be on tonight as well. Uh, all of you are inductees into the Green Industry Hall of Fame, so that's something I'm very proud to be associated with you guys. I feel if I hang around smart people, I'll get smart someday, so I'm learning. Osmosis. <laughs> so, Osmosis. What? <laughs> Osmosis. Osmosis, yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, what's in California water news this week that we should all be worried about?
2: Well, uh, before we talk about what we should be worried about, I'll I'll just say that uh, living up here now in Northern California, where about um, a 30-minute drive south of myself is Lake Oroville, the state water project's largest reservoir, and up north, about an hour north of to where I live, is Shasta Reservoir, which is the largest reservoir in California and one that uh, supplies the Central Valley Project, which is the farmland. And, uh, yeah, we had rain. Oh, boy, did we have rain. Um, Here in Chico, um, over five inches of rain just on Sunday, Monday, just then, Uh, But it was raining from Wednesday uh, all the way through Monday. And, you know, I mean, our backyard actually turned into a lake. We were like, whoa, okay. Um, And Lake Oroville really benefited. It raised about uh, 30 feet. Uh, Shasta didn't raise as much, but Shasta, you know, I mean, how far a reservoir raises is in part to, you know, how shallow is it in certain places and deep in other places. So Lake Oroville definitely got a bump. Uh, Lake Shasta, maybe not so much, but but they did come up some feet in elevation. So it was great for getting some water into the reservoirs. And so, you know, yay. And uh, as far as I read... While there was was some nuisance flooding, uh, you know, there wasn't anything super major, which is always great. We always want as much rain as we can, as beneficial as it can be, but just under the limit of causing flooding and damages. So I think we hit that. So. That's it. To hear that. So that's the good
1: news. Where I live. Yeah, Garth, go ahead.
2: Yeah, that was the good news. So, you know, I guess the other big story is uh the kerfuffle over the operations of the uh water project in the Delta continues. Um you know, it it's kind of interesting to note um that it was the Trump administration back in I think like 2019, uh, they redid the biological opinions, which are the rules that govern the operation of the water projects that are in the Delta uh, to, you know, preserve endangered species and the like. Uh, The Trump administration rewrote those rules, and those rules were always controversial, but they did go into effect um, in 2019. And so they were they have been the rules that have been in effect for you know this year and the the year previous, and when those rules went into effect, there were those that said that uh it was gonna cause problems with keeping cold water in Lake Shasta for the salmon uh and uh you know here we are some of those uh some of the things that they were saying. Did did actually occur? Now, did it occur for foreseeable conditions? I mean, kind of the thing that we are dealing here with is that the hydrology is changing in ways that have never really been anticipated in the modeling. Um, I mean, it, to a certain extent, yes, but some of these, you know, some of the totals kind of tend to now be outliers beyond what what has ever been anticipated. So there's a lot of things going on. Uh, but the Biden administration, about a, a month or two ago, uh, moved to have what they call a reconsultation on those biological opinions, those rules that uh, govern state and federal water project operations in the Delta. And uh, in the and so they they have asked for those rules to be suspended, and they have submitted this interim operations plan. Now, the biological opinions are themselves controversial, but this interim operations plan really seems to be uh, a problem uh for the Republicans and the Democrats um the Congress, you know, our congressional delegation, it doesn't seem to be party line, uh, you know, the but the D.C. congressional delegation on both sides is really not happy with this interim operations plan, as are other people, you know, other organizations, the ag organizations, <coughs> and whatever. I haven't really heard um uh, I, I don't really have a perception of where the environmental community is is sitting on this dispute, but um, but it is interesting to note that this this interim operations plan that is proposed is uh, you know not partic- not being supported by the Democrats or the Republicans. They are kind of saying you need to go back to the drawing board and you need to uh, discuss this with stakeholders. They're not proposing what they should do. They're saying you need to go back and figure out something else. So that's what people are concerned about these this last week here. Well, let me let me ask you this, Chris, because I was
1: reading an article about contingency plans. The state of California puts contingency plans together, or I guess they're, they're, for lack of a better word, if federal, <clears throat> if federal funds become available through the infrastructure program to us, there's Several different plans to put, I guess, uh, how, how those funds will be used, distributed, sold out, whatever you whatever you want to uh, call that. Is there any urgency of this going on now since, uh, since uh, some of the news this week was of uh, was, uh, the Republicans and Democrats maybe getting a little closer on an agreement?
2: Well, I, I think in terms of, you know, the infrastructure package that's moving through Washington, that's not really related to this issue this one is more down on the, you know, at the state level. I mean, it's uh, oh, right. uh, it, it, it's kind of centered here in California because uh, it's, you know, much too hard to explain to uh, you know, people who aren't, who don't have a you know, who aren't really familiar with all of these issues that we face here. Um, it I, I just think it's interesting that uh, you know, Senator Feinstein and Jim Costa and Kevin McCarthy and David Valadeo, um I mean and I'm and I'm naming uh both Republicans and Democrats for those who aren't familiar. Um they they all don't like this plan. So you know what what does that say? You know, not that I'm taking a position because I don't take positions, but I do think it does. It, it speaks volumes when uh, when both sides uh, don't like something. Uh, when both sides well, don't like something a lot, I should say. You know, you never make anyone happy, but no. um, but uh, but. This seems to be beyond the grumbling, well, I didn't get completely my way. This seems to be, you know, more like the whole, like both sides are saying, no, this whole thing, you know, doesn't work. So it'll be really interesting to see where it goes, uh, you know, in the coming weeks.
0: Hey?
1: Oh, sorry, Rob. Go ahead. Uh No, no, no. Everybody.
0: I was just, I was just, I got this urgent text, so I was reading that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so, Chris, so, you know, I'm just, you know, kind of looking at some stuff, definitely not a drought buster, right? We all know that, right? You know, one one storm like this certainly doesn't deliver us out of a, um, uh, out of a, out of a drought. Um, but thank statewide it was a it was a great benefit to the state i mean everything i've seen so seen so far right so um you know the the only bad thing is is, is would be if this was the only storm we got this in this season
0: how much water do you think they collected from the stormwater running down the oh streets
2: oh gosh you know a a um a, a lot i mean they they kind of Talk about this in billions of gallons, but I mean oh Lake Oroville rose thirty feet uh so, I mean thirty feet of water in in that reservoir that's a lot um, that's awesome. and you know and it came and it you know gave all the the dry vegetation a drink, and you know it it moisturized the soil. I mean, we had awfully dry soil conditions out there, so if it, if this, you know, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a blessing. If this had come in a wetter year, there might have been more impacts, but it came in a dry year and the, the vegetation and the soil out on the landscape just drank it up, you know, in a, in a lot of ways. But we still got a tremendous amount of runoff into our reservoirs. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like if, you had a had a bad couple of years economically, and you spent up all your savings and your retirement uh and then someone comes along or you go on a game show and you win twenty thousand dollars and It's like, well, that's great, and that's helpful uh but it nowhere restores you to where you were before, and that's kind of where we're at it This was great, it was helpful, we love it, you know. Please, Lord, keep it coming. Uh, but it it doesn't uh, it doesn't make up for a, you know a couple really really dry years. Well, no, today state as well.
1: I'm sorry. So, what? So it's good for the state economically as well. Chris Toro is uh, you know is, is looking at um, some progressive or some uh, jobs that are uh, progressing as a result of the of the rain. I mean just the you know, just the event itself kind of sparked some interest in uh in our business. Also for the ski industry, three feet of snow in mammoth for goodness sake, thirty inches at homewood. Um, that's gotta help.
2: Oh yeah, well, they there, opened up early.
0: There's
1: <laughs> some big, are
2: already open now.
0: There's a big nor'easter back in uh, the east coast today as well. Wish we could get some of that out here. <laughs>
2: Well, you had a really big monsoon down there
0: in Arizona this year. Uh, uh, actually, it was worse last year than this year. This year, it really wasn't that bad. I don't well, mm. where we live, like the mountains, it wasn't that bad here. Most of the flooding was caused east of, uh, east of us in Phoenix. But out here near the White Tank Mountains, it wasn't very much at all. A lot of wind, but not, uh, not you know, it rained hard for maybe 20, 30 minutes, and then there was just normal rain for the rest of the day or night. A lot of thunder lightning, a lot of beautiful lightning, awesome lightning, but uh, that's pretty much all we saw. Now, east east of here in Phoenix, they had tons of flooding, street floodings and things like that, so they got hit pretty hard. It usually gets uh, pretty heavy uh, either through the north of us, up in Flagstaff, or to east in Phoenix, so we're kind of mellow here, which is nice. So, so, what else is happening in the, in the wonderful world of water in California? Are they still waiting well, for the money to to be uh, approved the uh, the bills from uh, Washington?
2: Um, you know, I don't know how much anticipation there is for that. Um, you know, I, I will say that one of the more read uh, articles on the the notebook today was about how you know. The crop harvesting has changed in the last few years, and uh, you know, last year, you know, uh, there and into this year, rice has kind of gone down in acreage, uh, and so has cotton to a certain extent. But nuts are, you know, inching up in terms of acreage. Uh, You know, some interesting charts. Uh, You know, field crops are on the decline, and. Permanent crops are on the rise, and the problem with that is that you can, if you're growing, you know, fields of broccoli and cauliflower, and you don't have water, you can just not grow broccoli and not grow cauliflower, but if you have an almond orchard, uh, you know, you just can't not water your almond orchard for a year or two, and that has led to uh some almond orchards being pulled out although almonds still occupy uh way way that by far the largest category category in terms of harvest acreage you know right um uh, grapes coming see, next you know
0: i see i see here in arizona a lot of cotton fields loads of cotton yeah. fields yeah
2: you know, and, and there are uh, there are people that talk about, that say, you know, growing uh, cotton in the desert is a waste of water, which is, it, I mean, but there's just an interesting thing to contemplate here. And I don't know if it's true for Arizona, but I, I have verified that it's true for California, that in terms of the climate and the soils, that they grow cotton here, and it's the the amount of cotton produced per acre is twice as much as anywhere else in the country, meaning the southeast Georgia or wherever. Uh, the the yield from the field is phenomenal. So, you know, is it a is it a waste to to put to to grow cotton in California if your yield is twice as as much as anywhere else? I mean. I, I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. Uh, you know, there are impacts from growing that cotton, but there's also benefit, too. I mean, we need cotton. We need clothes. We use cotton. We use cotton all over the place. So, you know, we need we need to have these crops. You know, our farmers grow food and fiber for the nation, and uh, we, we should not, you know, in these times when water is tough, we just can't
0: discount that. No, no. no and unfortunately, the guy from my pillow buys his cotton in Giza from the Mediterranean, not around here. So uh, it would be nice if he bought more American stuff. But I guess there's different degrees of, from what they say, different degrees, or, or or if that's the right terminology, for the grade, I think grade is a better word, better grades of cotton. In those part of the world,s in the Mediterranean, than they are here. In they're softer, more breathable. At least that's what the commercials say. I don't know how true well, that is. We
2: we grow a lot of um, this Supima cotton here in California, which is really high value, nice stuff. Uh, sure, mm-hmm. Egyptian cotton is nice too. I have I have sheets that are Egyptian cotton, or so they say, but um, you know, it's it's just. It's just interesting to reflect on. Is it a waste of water to grow cotton in a place where it's uh, where water may not be plentiful, but the yield is huge, or should you grow that in a place where maybe water is more plentiful, but the yield is not so huge? <laughs>
0: that's, that's a tough decision, but you know, that, that goes a lot for whether it's almonds or dates or... Anything. I mean, this this state, or with this state being uh, in California and Arizona, I mean, they rely heavily on agriculture, and agriculture is a big part in California. I, right? you know, people talk in the legisl- legislation that oh, they should stop doing that. We should get rid of the cows. We should, you know, we get rid of that, and everybody's going to be naked with no food. I mean. it's
2: Well, and, you know, the thing about cows is that they actually perform an important service on the landscape because we don't have, I mean, they they, we graze them on these pastures and they chew down the vegetation, and that is an important element to the ecosystem and something that got changed, you know, a hundred years ago when we started having cattle out on the landscape. Um, there's a whole story there that I, I'm not entirely familiar with, but I just know that you just can't take cows off the landscape. They, I mean, there there are ramifications for that. Do we need to have as many cows eat as much meat? Probably not, but I don't think we can go the other direction and say no more cows either. No. I mean, no, I... we've created these systems that balance things.
0: Yeah, no, uh, we hey, agree. Well, we're coming up to our commercial break here, Chris. We appreciate you coming on as usual, and again, congratulations, and we'll be celebrating with you in two weeks uh, for the uh, you being inducted in the Green. Uh, uh, what's what's? I hear a bell ringing. What is that? Is that is that the other Chris? Is that your teacup? Bell. No. He's out. He's a out. Tea of. Tea. <laughs> a okay, let's call it tea. Sure, it's
1: tea.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you very much. Remember, for our listeners, please go to www.mavensnotebook.com, become a sponsor. Also, help out and be a subscriber to that. You get the best of California news every single morning on your PC, and you'll get more stuff than you'll ever get in any, any other uh, any other blog or newspaper or anywhere else on the web. It's the best, the most up-to-date, and it's written by one of the nicest people we know, Miss Chris Austin. So, Chris, thank Aww. you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll talk to you next week.
2: Okay. Good evening, everyone. Bye, Chris.
0: All right. Bye. Right. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be back uh, with a segment from uh, Kathy Kellogg, who is the chairwoman of Kellogg's Garden Products on What's Up with Soil. So we uh, want to talk about that. So uh, we've got some questions from our audience, and uh, she's going to answer them. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is 1050 AM, KCAA, Loma Linda, and 106.5 FM, UKIPA.
4: They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it. Instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, your crew is able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers. and. You can get your plants delivered direct even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip, keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you, and they really love you. Aww.
0: All right, uh, welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone. Hope everybody's having a great evening, and it's uh, nice where you live, except on the East Coast where they got a nor'easter going, and that's pretty nasty. I hear a lot of rain and, and such, and uh, and I guess we're getting, the Chris Chris uh, Davies said earlier, uh, I guess we got some uh, snow in in, in uh, California. So uh, at least uh, hopefully it can help us, but I wish we can get some of the water they got back east. Anyway, we're going to bring on our special. Uh, special person, Miss Kathy Kellogg, and she's going to do her little segment on what's the scoop about soil. So, here we go. <music> It's time for the most important part of your garden. What's the scoop on soil? Your host is Kathy Kellogg Johnson, chairman of the board of Kellogg Garden Products, an industry leader in all organic soil products.
1: Okay, we have a great basic question tonight, but we love those types of questions. This is from Marsha. Marsha's up in Seattle, Washington. And Marsha asks, can leaves that collect in garden soils harm the plants?
3: It is indeed a very good question. Uh, there has been sort of a culture, but luckily, March is from Seattle, and they have a really nice uh, citywide system of um, re- of motivating people to you know reduce the amount of stuff they put out at the curb to be collected and taken away. I think the culture of leaving things like leaves around your plants to mulch the soil is a tremendous tradition. Leaves are um, leaf litter is protective of soil ambiance. Ambiance is my own inscription because soil loves to stay at a temperature that is equal. Something temperate, um, soil can be damaged further and your garden can be damaged quite a lot by leaving your, your soil bare. <laughs> we launched a whole campaign about naked soil once and yeah, our marketing people didn't like it that much, but my, my, uh, tagline was no more naked soil never ever ever leave soil bare because there's so many ways in which it ruins uh it it gets rained on runs away the uh drops even from an irrigation system also compact soil particles or wash them away wind can erode and and make uh and damage soil sun in particular like you're having right now you know in the heat wave we had in seattle um, bakes the life out of the soil. And as we all know, it is life in the soil that we're all striving to have. So leaf litter creates this lovely blanket effect at night and shade effect during the day. And it helps, it helps from um, encourage the life in the soil by protecting it. Now there is kind of two rumors I'll put to rest. One is that eucalyptus leaves have to be toxic to soil because plants don't grow under eucalyptus trees. Well, we actually uh, commissioned a study at the UC Santa Barbara, finding out it was two decades ago, but we did uh, multiple plots of different types of leaf litter to see if there were toxicity. And composted leaf litter always did a little better than, than just plain leaves. But basically the reason... Plants don't grow under eucalyptus trees is are is because eucalyptus trees are water hogs. They are really a good competitor for water, and they just don't let anything grow because their uh, small root system will get to the top of the soil and take all the water. So this that was um, also oak leaves. We've been hurt. We've been there's a rumor out there and a myth that they are toxic in some way, but It's best to compost them so that they protect the soil. Um, A composted leaf litter would be your very best friend in terms of putting it back in your garden. All
0: right. Uh, We have a question sent in by Peter from Danbury, Connecticut. And he said, someone told me that you can sterilize soil. Is this true? And for what, what is this purpose?
3: That's so fun that you asked this because... My very early days into our family company's business, where we sell, you know, potting soils and soil amendments and organic fertilizer, everything organic you need to grow a plant. But in my very early 22 year old days of trying to figure out what the heck we did for a living, I was invited to our competitors' potting soil sterilization plant. And there were conveyor belts of potting soil going up under steam, heavy steam sterilization. The um, As the conveyor belts rolled by this very, uh, very hot, obviously 212 degree uh, heat stream of water was shot through the potting soil. And this company sold a steam sterilized potting soil, which was the gold standard for best potting soil ever. Well, it. Uh, even then I thought, well, that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem right. Wouldn't there be an immediate invasion of microbes as soon as that soil hit a pot or a, or a planting hole? And so I've since been, uh, my long journey from that day has shown me that in fact, sterilizing soil is a lot like Really, almost chemotherapy for your own body. It does kill everything, but then whatever builds back first is whatever uh, you encourage in terms of um, probiotics and healthy food and hydration and exercise. So, for your soil, if you were to steam sterilize it or you were to sterilize it chemically, you are now in a battle for the purity of the soil. And I would Um, there are times like with fusarium wilt or strawberry crops, for example, there's uh, a a reoccurrence of disease that's really difficult to fight. I could see that being a direction to try for that kind of a situation. But for um, everyday healthy soil that turns into healthy plants that turn into healthy food that you eat, the more microbes, the better the more encouragement of life, the better. And um, the more that there is an abundant amount of nutrients and a lot of microbial activity that translocate those nutrients into the roots of the plant and then into the food that you're deriving from the plant, that to me is a much better direction to try.
0: uh, I'm glad Kathy, I want to thank Kathy a lot for putting this on the show and uh, get, get to answer those questions that our listeners uh, want to know about. And she sure, obviously, she knows what she's talking about. She's the chairman of the board of Kellogg's Garden Products, and uh, they can be purchased in lots of big places. Uh, you can go to www.kellogg'sgardenproducts and see all the different uh, types of soil that they sell and, and amendments, and it's pretty interesting. You think it's maybe just one or two or three or five. They got a whole host of products uh, they sell under under that name and also uh, GNS. So uh, check them out, and uh, Kathy, thank you very much for joining uh, our show. And uh, so, Chris, we got uh, one of our best buddies come back on, and uh, he's going to talk about with his um, friends of his about lead pipes and what's happening in in the country, and what are the what are what is somebody doing about it. So uh, okay. let's listen to Travis Loop from Loop Communications.
4: Going to talk about the issue of lead pipes today. Uh, And I'm joined by two guests from the Environmental Policy Innovation Center. I have Jesse Norris, who's a senior analyst for water and technology policy, and Maureen Cunningham, who is deputy director of water. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to this conversation. Um, So lead, lead and drinking water is one of the probably most high-profile environmental issues in the country, Um, not just because of Flint, but because of lots of cities out there. Um, Could could you maybe give an overview of just the situation with lead pipes in the United States, how many there are, and just kind of what the status is of, of trying to address this problem?
5: Great. Yes. Well, and actually, President Biden has been talking a lot about lead in Congress as well. Uh, Lead pipes were largely installed a century ago in this country. And we at EPIC think there's no place for lead pipes in the modern world. Uh, We know there's roughly 11,000 municipalities, communities around the country that have lead pipes. And we know there's 6 to 10 million lead service lines, lead pipes upwards of 12 million around the country that carry water to people's kitchen taps. Uh, we also know that that lead, no amount of lead is safe uh, for humans. And we know that lead is is a detriment to health, to our society, and even to our economy. In fact, someone did a study and, and reducing lead exposure would actually save us an estimated $22,000 per lead pipe in reduced cardiovascular deaths alone. Lead exposure has been linked to brain development, lower IQs in in children, higher crime rates, lower economic activity. Even today, I saw a study that just came out that said more than 50% of kids younger than six in this country were tested, had some amount of lead in their blood. We also know that this is affecting public trust in our water supplies. Uh, we know that 60 million Americans don't drink their tap water, and a third of them have stopped drinking tap water since the Flint lead contamination crisis. So we know the lead pipes are there. We don't always know where they are. Uh, And our back of the envelope calculation is at at the current rate that we're replacing lead lines, it could take an estimated 100 years to replace all the lead tech toxic lead pipes in the US even if all the federal funding which we're watching closely this week goes through so so really the the big question at epic that we're trying to answer is you know how do we replace lead lead pipes faster? How do we encourage innovation and ef- efficiencies to replace these pipes? Because we don't want to live with them for another 100 years. So both of these questions are linked to data and visualization and communications. And that's why we launched our Water Data Prize. So with the appropriate action and innovation and investment, we hope that we can see the replacement of all lead service lines in the next decade in this country.
4: Hmm. Great overview. Thank you. And I guess it is the serious challenge or serious threat rather that lead poses to health and the widespread prevalence of lead lines across this country that have so many organizations like yours, um, Face, you know, trying to tackle this problem and putting this kind of at the top of your agenda. You know, everywhere you look, you see important organizations calling, calling for action and accelerated action on lead. Do you do you see that across the the landscape that you work in?
5: Yeah, we see that. We see the, the talk about lead in Congress right now, we see see the talk, um, we just were speaking to municipalities around the country yesterday. Everyone knows the lead lines are out there. Not all municipalities know where they are, uh, so we're trying to launch this Water Data Prize so that we can help municipalities find their their lead lines and replace them faster. Hmm
4: you know you mentioned that, that there might be some increased funding from the federal government to tackle this problem but uh money's only part of the solution right there's some there's some real challenges here with addressing the lead pipe situation. Um, I, I think you all kind of have identified four different areas and I'd love to have you explain those for folks. Why has this been such a, a persistent problem and why, why could it take a decade, you know, or a hundred years rather, um, at this current pace to, to deal with it?
5: Well, we know in this country that water utilities are facing a multitude of water challenges, not just lead. We know uh, that lead is is a big challenge, uh, and what we're seeing and watching in Washington is the lead and copper revisions, which is a new federal regulation that may become effective in, in December, and when that goes into effect, municipalities and water utilities will have to respond to those regulations. So some of the challenges related to the regulations uh, that that water utilities are facing, as I mentioned before, is that many municipalities don't know where their their lead lines are, where their lead pipes are. They want to know what tools and data can help them uh, find lead pipes and what are the best ways to publicly share. So that's the inventory piece. Uh, Another challenge for municipalities this is the mapping. How can they make this information on where their lead lines are more accessible, easy to understand, and interactive so that residents know where the threat is? Remember, this water quality threat is is different from others in that it's often found in a, an individual home uh, rather than at the water utility plant. So mapping is critical so that people know where these lines are and can access that information. Another uh, challenge is is the equity piece because in many cases, the lead pipes are on the homeowner's property or the landlord's property. um, There's a huge piece of equity. How do we make sure the most vulnerable populations, uh, those most at risk, Uh, get their lead lines replaced first? Um, And how do we, you know, make that a priority, the equitable uh, replacement of lead pipes? And the last uh, category or challenge is communications. Uh, The lead and and copper rule revisions have a a whole suite of new communications that water utilities are going to have to build on uh, in the future to communicate to the public about lead. So, What design tools and visualizations could give water consumers more actionable information on lead violations, lead sampling results, lead service line replacement status updates, and other health information? So those are the four challenges we're seeing uh, and the four categories that we see in the the new federal regulations.
4: Hmm. Yeah. That gives you, uh, people a sense of why this is so difficult uh, to to make more progress on. Those those are tough challenges. There's a number of challenges. So it's very difficult. Um, and, and there's things that have to be overcome there that don't just involve money. Um, and so you all at Epic have launched a competition to try to tackle some of those challenges. I'd love to hear about it and share that with folks.
6: Awesome. Yeah. So we launched the Water Data Prize uh, first in 2020, but this year is focused exclusively on lead and directly mirroring those four key aspects that we see municipalities facing. And the goal of this is really to say we know that there are millions of bright ideas from communication experts, from design experts, from technologists and data sciences that would be really relevant to finding and removing lead. Um, But there are a lot of cultural and organizational barriers or just inertia that prevents those ideas from reaching the water system managers or those smaller municipalities that need the assistance the most. So that's what we're trying to help with is pulling together all of the, the creatives and experts in the field um, or those outside of water, right, that just know about communications and can say, here are some tips and tricks that you should use when thinking about communicating around lead pipes. So the 2021 Water Data Prize is open to anyone um, looking to help across those four different areas.
4: Fantastic. And could you let people know where they can go to, to look at yeah. the contest and, and how to enter and what, what maybe the deadline is for doing so?
6: So for more information, you can go to waterdataprize.com. That will have all the information about uh, those categories, examples of the categories, um, general FAQs. And so the prize was launched on September 15th and applications are open through November 10th.
4: Fantastic. Very exciting. Well, I would like to try to dig into those four areas with you a little bit because your competition specifically identifies those, the inventory, the mapping, the equity, the communications. And I'd love to just dig into why those are challenging, um, maybe some examples of good practices that are out there or not so good and just kind of give people more of a flavor for the, the situation here.
6: So the first one is inventory, and what we're looking for there is really what is the best technology or tools or data that could be used to predict or determine whether there's lead within um, a home. And so there's a couple different ways that people have done this. Uh, One huge predictor is the age of a home and the location of a home. So we're trying to say um, how what is the best technology or practices that municipalities could use to determine where the lead pipes are. Uh, The second is mapping. And I think we have a couple of examples that we wanted to show y'all to basically get an understanding of what's a good example and what's a bad example.
2: Yeah, let's Um, take a look.
6: um, So the first example that we're looking at is from DC Water. And what we really liked about this is that you can see very clearly every home is delineated. And as Maureen was mentioning earlier, with lead, it can both be the pipes in someone's home or the pipe that is um, delivering the water to someone. And so we need to understand Where is it in the home or on the street? And with those predictive tools, with inventorying, sometimes we're just uh, making a strong estimate as to whether or not there's lead there or we don't know at all. And so in the case of D.C. water, this legend really makes it clear as to, yes, it is confirmed that there's lead or it's not lead in your home. And so I, as a resident, could very clearly understand that. Um, The next example is in Boston, where I am currently based. And this is where I look at this and I'm pretty overwhelmed because there's a ton of dots on this map. And it tells me nothing, really. Um, The legend here just said lead services. And so that's either on my home, in the street. They know that. They don't know that. Is it confirmed? And so I'm left with more questions than clarity when I look at this map. And so what we're trying to say is just, you know, what are the ways in which we can design this, communicate effectively, so that when a resident or a municipality looks at this, they have a clear vision and plan for how to address the lead replacement. Um, I'll pass it to Maureen for the next two examples.
5: So the next category is equity. We know that many lead pipes are concentrated in older houses and in older cities, too. We also know that communities of color and low-income Americans are especially impacted by lead and drinking water in households. So because of that, we wanted to include equity as a category, looking at what's the criteria for determining who needs a replacement first, how are communities in need even identified, and how are communities with high levels of lead poisoning and known lead lines prioritized. So these are the questions we're looking at and hoping to answer and see
4: answers. Mm, Fantastic. And I know the fourth area that you're focusing on is communications. You mentioned that before. Um, What are some some examples of good communications or maybe not so good communications? Love to just kind of look at the the practices out there.
5: Okay. We know... Communicating about lead is critical and it's critical as part of the new federal regulations. Uh, We even heard from a municipality yesterday who lost the public trust because of failure to get in front of a water contamination crisis in in that municipality. So getting in front of the communications, getting the communications right, right from the onset is is critical. And there's a lot of new um, communications that are needed. Uh, Right here, we have a letter from a utility explaining to a resident about the presence of lead pipes and, and also explaining that replacing the lead pipes would be free. So we see a lot of text. This came in the mail. Uh, we don't see any visuals. Uh, the letter references things like lead laterals, which who knows what that means. Uh, so someone receiving this letter may just throw it away and assume it's junk mail. It's not a bill. Um, so they just throw it away. So that is an example of maybe not the best communications. The next example comes from Philadelphia and, and we have a screenshot here, but you can actually go online. It's an interactive website. It has clear guidance about what's going on with lead. It has even has a video for folks to watch in case reading is not their thing and, and they really wanna delve into the issue. And this resource is also available in multiple languages. So we really like the example of Philadelphia for that reason uh, and in general, we want to see communications that are available in multiple languages, easy to read language, not, not using a lead service line, but maybe just saying the pipes delivering water to your home. And we want to see communications when we're talking about lead, it may require communications in many forms. So letters to, to a resident, it couldn't require the internet and videos, but, Ultimately, it may also require door-to-door and face-to-face communication as well.
4: Great uh, outline of those different areas there. So uh, when this competition closes, um, you all will be taking a look at all the submissions. Um, What happens then with the ones you identify as the best, the winners, if you will? What's going to happen to try to, to actually get some mileage out of those?
6: Yeah, definitely. Um, So if our 2020 Water Data Prize is any example, what has been really impressive and important about this work is basically convening different stakeholders from the utilities, the tech companies, the community advocates, the communications experts, and kind of compiling those best practices. And then we as EPIC work as the convener between those different entities and the regulators and folks at EPA to demonstrate, here's what's possible. Here's some really easily Implementable and important uh, steps to improve water quality communications. And so we'll compile all of that. Um, we have a number of engagement opportunities and then really work to facilitate kind of that communication and implementation of the ideas um, after the prize.
5: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we're trying to push the needle here and encourage more innovation, more ideas, and ultimately, we're trying to move the needle on lead, lead pipes. We don't want to see them around in the country, and we really want to amplify any efforts to quickly, efficient, efficiently, and equitably move and replace them. Uh, innovation is really a key to this water data prize, and we think it's also the solution to replacing lead pipes around the country.
4: I guess in closing, I just want to ask um, given the the size of the challenge, the scope of the challenge, but also all of the interest and attention and and momentum on lead, um, where do you stand on the the optimism scale that you know the pace can be picked up and that there can be some great solutions in these in these areas um, yeah how how are you just feeling about about this situation?
5: You know, we just had a meeting yesterday with some municipalities, smaller municipalities, under-resourced municipalities, and a whole slew of additional partners, funders, impact investors. And I really think the innovation is out there and we just need to kind of harness it for replacing lead pipes. So I'm optimistic. I think the federal funding we hope will go through and that will help as well.
6: Yeah, I would add that I think in terms of the types of water challenges that we're facing, let lead pipeline removal is one of the easiest. It's like, we know it's an issue. We know how to fix it and we can fix it. Um, so I think that's why we chose this for this innovation prize, because there's a lot of momentum and it's a solvable problem that we want to just make sure happens.
4: Fantastic. Well, I look forward to learning about the submissions that you all get and seeing, uh, the, the winners and the ideas that come out of this and then hoping to see them, you know, take, uh, in in communities across the country taking on this lead issue. But so Maureen and Jesse, thank you very much for coming on and explaining all this. Thank
5: Thank you you. so much. This was fun.
0: Well, you know, you know, Chris, uh, what's really interesting is Toro owns a company called Hammerhead and they line and that might be something we should let them know about because instead of digging them all up and trying to take them all out, they can line the pipes with their special material uh, everything stays in the ground. It's obviously got to be a lot less money and quicker. So we'll pass that on to them. I think that might be a good uh, a good thing to do. Hey, a couple I things think, on. Yeah, a yeah, couple of things that's coming up. So for our audience, if you're uh, you know get ready to explore, connect, and learn at the largest gathering of irrigation professionals in the world from <laughs> December sixth through the tenth in San Diego. The 2021 Irrigation Show and Education Week will reconvene to bring back the best in education cutting-edge technology, and networking for the irrigation industry. Uh, and you hear Socks in the background. He's getting all excited about it. His ears perked up. He's ready to go. Uh, register at theirrigationshow.org uh, before November 1st to secure the early uh, bird rape. And we're also um, on the 14th of uh, November. Uh, for those of you who like Wyland, the marine artist, uh, W-Y-L-A-N-D, uh, he's having a fundraiser and an auction uh, down near the Sawdust Festival in Laguna. And to find out more about that uh, and to attend it, it's, it's really awesome. He'll, he'll even paint paintings in front of you, and then they raffle them off as well. Uh, you can go to wylandfoundation.org and learn more about the uh, the event that is coming up on the 14th of the month. It's great. They even have, uh, if you come early and sign up where they have a whale uh, searching ride that you get on a boat. Go out on the ocean, look for whales, and you come back at 4 o'clock, and then you have the dinner and the auction and stuff, and stuff. And you get to meet Wyland, get pictures with them. Uh, it's a pretty nice event. Chris and I are going to be there as well, uh, since we're we're a sponsor of that and a participant with him uh, with Toro, and uh, we 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 really like his partnership that we've had with him for the last ten years, and we're always going to keep that up. Aa Loma Linda, ten fifty a.m., one hundred
6: six point five FM, and now one hundred two point three FM.